0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Steve, another uh, another Wednesday, another podcast, an episode of the Growth Equation. How you doing, man?
1: Uh, I'm doing great. I'm actually looking forward to this because we don't have to talk to each other. We have a special guest. Yeah. And it was a really, really
0: wonderful conversation um, all about subtracting and why we often do more, add more, think more. And and sometimes subtracting makes a lot more sense. So um, Lady Klotz is our guest today. He wrote a new book called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. And um, that's who we're going to talk to. But before we do that, there is sometimes benefit in more. So Steve is going to tell you
1: all how you can get even more good stuff from The Growth Equation. Look at that transition. If you want more, and especially more deep conversations with authors like Lighty and others, um, join the Patreon group. The Growth Equation Patreon has a monthly book club where we take a book, dissect it, have authors come on and you know you get to ask your questions in addition you get these podcasts early you get all sorts of good goodies in terms of guides all sorts of good stuff so check it out you can do so at patreon.com slash the growth equation all right now to the show
0: So a few weeks ago, we discussed my own uh, strength training program, and it's uh, it's meager, and it's even more meager now than it was then. So on the podcast that started off with the empathy gap in the NFL and other organizations, somehow we got to um, my kind of losing the energy and in, in desire to strength train, and particularly that my workouts It's only about four hours a week total, four by one hour. But the auxiliary stuff at the end just became so tedious. And it's a mix of a lot of things. You guys can go back and listen. I'm not at the gym because my kid's still not vaccinated and that doesn't feel comfortable. So I'm in my basement alone. I'm launching a book, on and on and on. And about two days after we recorded, it kind of just hit me in the face. It's like, you're not a pro athlete. You don't have to ditch training altogether, you don't have to make any kind of big choice, why don't you just call the guy that coaches you and just work on subtracting the stuff that you don't like? And that's exactly what we did. And now my workouts take about a half an hour, and I look forward to them. And our guest today, Lighty Klotz, is probably the world's expert on subtraction. So he wrote a beautiful book. It's called Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. I'm holding it up even though I'm realizing that we don't video. Um, So, Lighty, I think a good inroad to this topic into your work is how come I didn't think of that simple solution, I don't know, six months ago? Why is it so much harder to get to a point where you are subtracting versus adding?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was the surprising thing from our research is we found that people just don't think of it to begin with. Right. I mean, I think it's pretty intuitive that we don't often subtract. Right. That we but the assumption is that we've considered it and decided not to. Um, and it turns out that even before we consider this option, which is an option, whether we're, you know, doing our workout or um, kind of our, our diet or, you know, our schedule for the day, um, even before we consider and reject this as an option, we don't even consider it in the first place. So I would say what you have done, um, Brad, is very similar to what our, our research participants did. <laughs> and they um, think of adding first, move on, and then don't even consider subtracting as an option until, until last week. So congratulations, I, I've, uh, and I'm, I'm impressed too. I've got to think about how I could do that for my workouts.
0: So in the book, you dive deep into some of the reasons why it is so, um, just unnatural for us to subtract. Can you speak to those a little bit, um, both in terms of our, our DNA, like our actual DNA, and then also the way that our cultural DNA has evolved over the last couple hundred years?
2: Yes. Um, I mean, so first the, we did a whole bunch of experiments to show that this was the case. And, um, so I'm, a. uh, professor and we do a lot of studies in labs and uh, we gave people all of these objects, whether it was Legos or travel itineraries or um, even uh, pieces of written text and said, make this thing better. And people continued to to add, which was not surprising. But then we started to give people objects where subtracting was the inarguably the better choice and where they didn't really have any experience with the thing beforehand. So um, th- I think the most convincing experiment that we ran was with these grids on a computer screen, which you could basically make symmetric, you, you were tasked with making symmetrical from left to right and from top to bottom. And we'd put extraneous marks in one corner of the grid. So one way to make these things symmetrical was to add marks to three corners of the grid. The the other way was to subtract marks from one corner of the grid. And we told people to do it in as few clicks as possible. We had them practice, so on and so forth. And people still, um, about half, half the people overlooked the subtractive option, which was pretty good evidence that what was happening wasn't that they were uh, thinking about, oh, I could subtract. I'm just not choosing it. It was that they were going right to adding and never even considering subtracting in the first place. So that's the, you know, we have a lot of new research showing that phenomenon. And that research got published in Nature in April, like a week before the book came out, <laughs> So the pinnacle of my academic career. There's no way it goes up from there. But um, and uh, so there's a lot of like that's the new stuff. That's new research. And then the, the book is an investigation into, well, um, why, why? Why is this happening and what are some of the forces that might be causing it? And uh, so so you asked about biological. That's kind of where we first go, right? How has this maybe helped us pass down our genes? Um, how, how did this help our ancestors? And, uh, you know, some of the obvious things there that you might think of are, well, this desire to acquire food. That seems like it would have been helpful, right? Um, that And even acquire food and stockpile food. That's a behavior that we see in other non-human uh animals. And, and then one surprising one that I saw on the biological side that I think is also really helpful for us as we zoom to the modern day is, is just how uh, how evolutionary this desire to display competence is, right? And so the famous example is bowerbirds building nests. These are the the birds, the male goes and builds this really ceremonial, ornate nests. And then the female birds come around and look at the nest and they decide, okay, which male do I want to mate with based on how nice the nest is. And then the female bowerbird goes and builds their own nest for to shelter the young. So the whole purpose of this first nest is just to show that the male is effective at interacting with the world. And it, and it makes sense, um, you know, after you get past the kind of funniness of a ceremonial nest being built by a bird that, you know, probably doesn't have a lot of extra resources to be doing things with. Uh, but what the bird is doing is signaling, hey, I'm effective at interacting with the world, so I'm a good person to, you know, to whose genes you might want to acquire. Um, and that notion of competence, in dealing with the physical world has also been extended, um, by more recent psychology researchers into how we deal our successful completion of tasks. Right. So when we're going through and you're, you know, you've got your hour long workout in, in some ways that's, you know, you can say it's an hour long workout. I feel like I'm kind of displaying competence and that's a very evolutionary reason for our, for our adding behavior. Um, so that's, uh, those are some of the evolutionary forces. And I think one of the things that I try to do in the book, too, is point out that, number one, all these forces work together. Anytime there's a behavior, as you know, and as you so brilliantly write in your book, the like there are multiple forces at play here. Um, and not everything is working against subtracting. Right. So if you think about our modern accumulation of stuff, I mean, hunter-gatherers had to carry everything they had everywhere they went, right? And so we can't excuse our <laughs> excuse our modern behavior based on hunter gatherers who surely had very efficient uh in terms of the amount of stuff they had lifestyles. Um and then also on the evolutionary thing that I think a really great metaphor for how we should use these two or how we could think about using adding and subtracting is the way that evolution does it, right? I mean, evolution works by adaptations and selections right and so the uh, views adding and subtracting is kind of complementary ways to make change and that's um kind of one of the main messages of the book is i think if we can shift towards that we'll have basically twice as many options as our at twice as many options at our disposal Um, i can keep going i can go into the cultural stuff i feel like i've been talking for like five minutes and (laughs) No,
1: this is great. I'd love to okay. hear the cultural stuff. Let's just keep yeah.
2: rolling because you're the
1: expert. We're just trying to dig into it.
2: Okay. Yeah. Well, this is fun for me too. And I'm the the so the cultural. I mean, we talk about biological evolution, and um, the fun thing about writing this book for me was I'm an engineer by training, and um, and I do a ton of behavioral science research. But a lot of this is like kind of new to me, or at least the nuances were new to me, and so. Um, you know, learning that, yes, the same, basically the same way that our biology evolves, you know, our culture evolves, right? Except for culture can do it a lot faster because culture evolves through ideas. And, you know, as soon as you write something in a book, that idea can move around the world really quickly and change culture. And so as you're thinking about forces that influence behavior, it's like, yeah, there are these things that have helped us to um, in terms of biology, those take a really long time to evolve. Um, the, the cultural things can happen more quickly. Um, one of the, the most fascinating thing I found on the culture was, um, when you look at the, the, like the beginning of civilization, there are these things that people, the historians and anthropologists, uh, agree Had to be there for something to be considered a civilization. It was the stuff you think about, like writing and organized religion and um, kind of people living closely together. But then there was this thing called monumental architecture, which is, you know, a fancy name for huge stuff that doesn't have any function. It's basically the human equivalent of the the bowerbird nests. Um, and so if you think about the pyramids, or if you think about some of these temples that were built in the earliest civilizations, um, one of the things that always had to be there was these, these big uh, physical structures. And the theory is basically that, you know, building the body of civilization is what brought people together so if you've got a group of 25 hunter gatherers um they can only build a certain size thing if people want to then come if people want to build a a larger structure uh, it requires them to coordinate with other hunter-gatherer bands um, and it also requires them to be in one place for a longer period of time which then requires them to think about okay how do we have you know, agriculture or like a stable source of food that we don't have to follow around. Um, So this monumental architecture being there at the genesis of civilizations, and there's even a theory that um, monumental architecture is kind of what sparked these civilizations, um, that that is a very adding behavior in a physical way. And then of course you've got all the other adding things that civilizations do that are very similar to our modern, modern adding behavior, right? So like adding information, adding um, written words, adding social structures, adding um, uh, laws, rules, all these things that, you know, we sometimes think we have too much of now and of course when you think back to the beginning of civilization when there's when those things don't exist it makes sense to add them and you know we've all kind of evolved from you know whether we're in Japan or in the United States or you know pretty much every modern culture has evolved from one of these civilizations that has grown by um, by adding so there's some pretty deep kind of cultural roots there too
1: all right, that that was fantastic. That sets kind of a very good stage where we can jump off of because I think what you just demonstrated there is just like how deeply ingrained or rooted this this addition problem is, or this accumulation problem is. And also, you know, while you're sitting there giving the uh, example of the nests and then the monumental art architecture, I can't help but think like man, all we're doing is kind of like sending these signals and whether they be of competency or, you know, related things. But it's like, dang, these signals are really freaking like powerful and hard to, you know, disengage from. Am I kind of reading that right?
2: Yeah, totally. And of course, the, the huge disadvantage subtracting has is that it doesn't send a signal right it's like you take something away no matter how brilliant it is i mean unless you're the yeah it's hard to remember that somebody actually did that
1: yeah okay i have a here i have a question to zoom out from the weeds a little bit on this that i think it will probably bounce around a lot because you you laid out some great things and i'm sure brad has a lot of questions as well but um as I'm hearing you talk about like sending these signals for accumulation and competency and all this stuff, it reminds me that in the world of what Brad and I do, which is like coaching, whether that be in sport or executives in life, often we focus on like increasing our motivation to like deal with some of these things instead of which if if I'm hearing your you know uh research and then reading it right instead of maybe the the approach is like removing barriers right making it easier so you don't have to or make making the path a little clearer so we don't have to like summon these massive amounts of motivation to overcome things
2: exactly and this is something that um i mean kurt lewin is the basically the father of social psychology and and one of his his force field theory is basically that you know we think of behavior as not just a, an individual and like the thoughts that are in their head but it's like the individual and the situation that they're in right and there are these things that are moving them in the direction that you want them to go so those would be things like okay well go you know do a practice run or go, you know eat a healthy dinner or, and then they're like kind of forces working in the opposite ger- opposite direction, which would be, I don't know, not enough time to train or unhealthy food or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and Lewin's point was that of, of course, you can achieve desired change by adding those forces that are helping you, but he thought that it was actually better. And I think it makes sound logical sense. It's actually better to remove those, those barriers, right? Because if you're just adding, more impelling forces, more forces moving you in the direction that you want to go. The barriers are still there, so you've just got even more tension in the system. And um, and so Lewin was saying that if you can remove those barriers, that's actually the good way to make change because it relieves tension. Um, so yeah, that's uh, I, I'm glad that the the book brought that insight. And I think you know the other uh, the other thing I would add on top of what Lewin said there is that. I agree that it relieves tension and also the fact that we've been overlooking it for so long suggests that it, maybe there's more kind of untapped potential there. So, I'm going to I'm going to maybe make you uncomfortable
0: ID because as a is <laughs> like a writer and a coach and not a researcher. I can make statements like this and, and and you might not be able to. I think like this main point of your research in your book is when you think about it, like one of the most important things I've heard in the last 10 years, because I think of societally, the things that are really issues. And I think about social, social media and misinformation. That's just too much information, too much noise. I think of trying to get a book deal. It's all about your platform. How many followers do you have? More, more, more. I think of um, keeping up with the Joneses in real life. You write about this a little bit in your book, that homes are valued based on how many square feet? More, more, more. SUVs. I grew up in suburban Detroit, where because there's not much to do in Detroit, what you did is you spend your time accumulating money so you can buy a big SUV and you drive your SUV around. And then you think about climate change, which is ultimately a problem of like too much, too many carbon emissions, too much consumption. Um, you think about anxiety, which is probably the disorder of our time. That is too much thinking, which the force field is all this information. So... I guess my question for you to step back from that really big swing is, can you talk about at an individual level first, and then we can get to maybe some cultural changes, but how do you swim upstream in a culture where the entire force field is just all about more always? I didn't even mention obesity. That's another disease of more.
2: Yeah, that's, um, boy. A lot there. I I mean, I think to return the compliment, I think that a lot of the ideas in your book are very practical ways for for swimming upstream. I mean, I and especially on the on the individual level. So I want to come back to the culture point, um, but you know, just on the individual level. So. First of all, like for, for your book, I mean, everybody should should buy this. I read it yesterday because I was coming on and I had read Peak Performance and, and liked it. But um, the amount of synthesis that you do of the academic research and the, uh, and the kind of wisdom from before when stuff was categorized as academic research is just astonishing and accurate. I mean, as somebody who is uh, who is in this world, it's amazing how many times or not, not amazing, I guess, but it's it's become not surprising to read characterizations of academic work. And you're like, wow, they missed the point there, um, which isn't the case at all with with what you've done. And so that's just incredibly valuable uh, tool for researchers in our field. But then. Um, the practical stuff i'm i wrote down the three things that i started from yesterday but like in eliminating this uh, dissonance right between your online and your personal no, self no no right? no no we my this audience has heard enough about the practice of groundedness no 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 this is <laughs> this is um so let me talk this ties into subtraction right so it's all right um, there you go yeah so but remember the, the amount of information, right? The amount of stuff you have to remember. There's a great Mark Twain, I think it's a Mark Twain quote about like, I, I don't tell lies because then I don't have to remember anything. And it's like that, that um, by eliminating that cognitive dissonance and, you know, of your different, um, your, your different people that is going to, uh, that is going to help with that. And that's a way of kind of moving upstream. Um, I think that the, uh, I, I won't, I won't go into any more of your practical tips, uh, because. But uh, the, um, I think you you talk about stop doings in your book. I talk. I, yep. You what do you call them? Uh, I think you you call them something different and not stop. I, I I I pitched it and I was so glad to see this and
0: subtract. I pitched it initially in ground in this is a bullshit list. but yeah. My editor said like that was a little too harsh. Okay. Um, So I think I called it like a just say no list, and in yours so, it's a not to do list, right?
2: Yeah. Um. And so it's the same basic idea, but I, I think it does tie into the science too, right? Where it's like, okay, um, one of the reasons this is hard is because we don't think of it in the first place, and well, a surefire way to help yourself think of it is to give yourself cues, right? Is to give yourself a reminder, and not just a general reminder. I mean, I, I hope the book is a general reminder that kind of shifts mindsets, but. You also need these reminders that are there right when you're making the decision and so when you're making your to-do list or you're making your calendar for the week also think about the things you stop doing right there we've kind of gotten people past the um this tendency to not even think about it and then um it also helps with the competency piece right because you're at least you can write it down you can display it uh and one of my favorite things that i've learned about in writing the book um One of my co-authors, his partner, who's also a psychology professor, when she subtracts stuff, she leaves it on her calendar um, and says, "Okay, this this two hours brought to you by not going to the faculty meeting. And so she gets around that that noticeability problem that subtraction has by um, when she subtracts something, leaving a visible reminder that the subtracting is to thank for this beneficial time. Um, so I think on the personal level, I mean, those are, and you can imagine how, you know, the stop doing is a really good, vivid example of a cue, but everybody could probably think about where in their life do they make critical decisions and how can you put in place a reminder so that you don't overlook this very basic option when you're making those decisions. And I think that's the most, um, the most practical, uh, kind of self thinking thing that you can do. Um, does that make sense? For sure. I have one follow-up there. And I'm curious yeah.
0: if if you'd put this in my toolkit of subtraction or somewhere else. Um, and I actually haven't seen much research on this topic in an individual level. There's often a ton of research here in like health policy. But something that I found in my executive coaching practice is that often people come to me And one of the many things they want help with is there's just way too much stuff. They're staying at work too late. They're having to work after dinner. And they always psychologically, so not physically, but psychologically, they want to add things. So how can I be more productive? How can I be more efficient? And I I try to reason with them and say, I don't think you can. And after three months of failing, they finally come around. And the only thing that works for people in that situation is capitation. So simply saying... You're going to stop working at six, and whatever doesn't get done, you're going to start tomorrow morning. And somehow people figure out a way to do it. So, like, have you done any? Have you seen or have you conducted any research on that notion of just like really rigid boundaries? And I mentioned I I think there is a lot of published research to show in healthcare if you kind of have a capitated budget, the system tends to get more efficient. But mm-hmm. I think that that's also true for individuals. And I'm just curious if that's just a hunch, if it's way off, if you've seen that research or or maybe not.
2: Um, I, I can't speak directly to the research. I'm sure there's other research in addition to the healthcare stuff that you mentioned that would allude to that. You know, once, when you put constraints on things, people are going to think in a more constrained way uh, that just makes sense. And actually it probably ties into some of the kind of cognitive load stuff. And um even the the scarcity mindset work that um, Sendel Molanathan has done and Elder Shafir. Uh, I can also say that just on a personal level, I mean, that is the huge productivity takeaway that I got from having a kid or having our first kid, right? It's like a forced capitation. And all of a sudden, which and it's frustrating looking back because you're like, man, before I had a kid, I was just doing all this crap that I've realized I didn't need to be doing. After I had the kid, because it's the stuff that now that you've only got a certain amount of hours, it forces you to take those things away. And I think when I, you know, I'll always have kids now, but I think when they go off to college and they don't need me to change their diapers, and I have a little bit more time, I mean, I'll probably, I'm not going to bring back the same stuff I was doing before I had kids. So I think that 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 capitation has worked for me. I wish I had somebody who could tell me about it before I. It was forced upon me by a kid
1: love it um so brad's told a story i'm going to tell a quick story which i promise gets to your book uh which reminds me uh, your your last part there like being forced like wish you understood this without being forced kind of gets at this is back way back in grad school um i took this summer course that was taught by a former NFL general manager. And I'm not really sure what the point of the class was because it, it essentially became like how to be a general manager. And there was like five people in the course because it's a summer course. Um, but it was the best class I think I took in, in grad school. And while reading your book, like it made me dig out notes from, you know, decade plus ago, and Because I remembered this, this uh, two guest speakers, one was a really successful basketball coach, one was at the time an NFL head coach, and they both said the same thing, and it didn't sink in then. And they both said, essentially, when we were young, like when I was first getting into coaching, whether it was basketball or football, um, my playbook grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And grew. And I just accumulated more plays and more complexity and all that stuff. And then they said, like, well, one of the NFL coaches said, after I got fired, I realized I had to do something different. So I just started cutting, 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 cutting. And now my playbook is like, you know, 10 times smaller than it was when I first got my first head coaching job. And the basketball coach said the same thing, thinner playbook. And at the time I was like, you know, it didn't sink in. But as I got into my own coaching practice, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. Right. And then as reading your book, I'm like, oh, this makes, this makes perfect sense. But my question for you is like, that causes a lot of angst because we want to, we want to like accumulate and put the knowledge and put the new stuff you know, snazzy play in there because we think it, it might work. How do we deal with that? Like angst or feel okay letting go so that we can get to the stuff that works.
2: Boy, I mean, this is the constant struggle, right? I mean, the, that's why I, you have an editor for your book too. You know, it's like, <laughs> because of that angst it's, and, and it's just really hard to, um, uh, to, to, to do something and then to take it away, especially when you're trying to prove that it's like, hey, I've done something. And so I've talked, I work some with like um, business consulting organizations and they have the same issue. It's like, okay, the client has given them multi hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this study and they come to basically a one sentence conclusion. And they don't want to say that's the whole here. here, This is all you really need, but we can't just tell you that. Um, so I, uh, I, I mean, there are little tricks we can do, right? I mean, you can put stuff in the appendix, you can put stuff in the the notes when you do a presentation. I, I try to do this for my students. Uh, you know, I, I give a streamlined presentation and then give them the background information if they want to dig in. And I think it, it, who knows if they ever dig into it, but it makes you feel a little better that they're not going to perceive your streamlined presentation as lazy less I also think it's just like a good illustration this is something that I think my book uh rank not one of the points I make in the book is that there's two kinds of less right there's lazy less which is basically I just didn't do anything right so I've got three crappy plays in the playbook (laughs) and there's and there's like post satisfice less or like this less beyond more where it's like okay this is I've got my experience as a coach. I know all the plays. It's not like there's some knowledge that's missing here. And I've purposefully subtracted, not because like I'm too lazy to have a whole bunch of plays, but because I know that the subtractive option is better. I mean, that doesn't get around the, the angst, um, it, but it does, uh, I think, help when you're you're thinking about it yourself, right? It's you know the. A playbook version of the i would have written a shorter letter if i had the time it's like you're recognizing that it takes more time to get to less and i think that's something that as as bosses and i mean bosses is a weird word but as when you're working with people how can you kind of recognize that when they do provide less but um i don't know do you guys have tips for getting around the angst i mean it seems like that's uh right in your wheelhouse too it's hard uh
0: When it comes to to written stuff, when I put on my writer hat, it reminds me of this heuristic that I use um, and I don't always use it well, but I try is first writing needs to be effective, at least nonfiction writing, which means it is getting the point across Mm -hmm. and then. So to me, in your words, that's like you're satisfying, like that's good enough, Mm -hmm. but then great writing needs to be elegant and elegant takes a lot more work (laughs) And it is often um, a lot more like insecure because you are cutting stuff that might be useful. So what I try to do there, I think in in my own work, is like I'll basically for everything I write, I start from okay, let's get this to a point where it's effective, and then depending on the importance of it, the time, the energy, then I say, all right, how can I try to make this a little bit more, a little bit more elegant, and then um, in a more of a business setting you know, I, I completely agree with you. I think that uh, like this is what appendices are made for because you do a really good job in your book of differentiating between, again, lazy, what you call lazy less and like post-satisfying less. And, and just for listeners, the post-satisfying less and it's satisficing less is you get to a point that's good enough and then actually to make it better, you take away. So you already have to have stuff there. And I think like back to my days at McKinsey you know, you have all this stuff and then the client wants like three bullets on a page. So you put all that stuff in the appendix because you don't want to give it away. And McKinsey's had a lot of issues where they don't put that stuff in the appendix and they get into big trouble because their three bullets were actually lazy less, not post-satisfying less. Um, so I think from a actual, like it's there in the world to reference standpoint and from a giving you security and confidence, um, I think, I think that having an appendix makes a lot of sense. Um I'm going to turn it over to Steve and and I want you to talk about this Steve because you know in in your heyday coaching like elite runners you used to tell me these stories of people that would be tapering before a big race and they'd get insecure because they weren't doing any workouts they were subtracting so they'd like feel the need to prove to themselves that they're fit and do like a really hard workout a week out from the race and they basically left the race in that workout. And Steve, is that like the same kind of mindset of like needing to like prove to yourself that like I can run this race? I do have this answer.
1: Yeah, that's a good point because it is. I think it it comes from that same insecurity, right? And it's like you're used to doing X, which in elite runner world could be running 100 miles a week, right? And you take it away and all of a sudden like that fear, that angst, that uncertainty of like oh, crap, like, can I really do this? Am I losing fitness? All of that kind of goes by the wayside. And as a coach, like, you, you recognize that and then you try to get them to have, like, secure confidence in the work that they've done. But you also, what I call, like, put in, like, fake workouts that really don't fatigue you but make you seem like you're doing something. So that like you feel like, okay, yeah, like I did something, like I went a little bit hard, so I'll be okay. And it's just like this mind game that gives you that that gives you that that ability to just be like, oh, I'm satisfied. And taking it outside of the the running athletic realm, you know, what you got me thinking there, Brad, is when you both you guys mentioned like the appendixes, I I consider it like repurposing. So in writing world when i'm writing i try and be very intentional on when i'm going through and subtracting so i will read a draft with the sole intention of like cutting things out and that that is the only reason i'm i'm doing this read through and to get over feeling like oh man should i really cut this i really like this i try and like shift it in my mind where i'm like oh i'm not getting rid of this i'm repurposing this right Here's Inside Baseball for for book book marketing. I always think if I cut something, well, you know what? I'm going to create like a bonus or a like, you know, here's a bonus chapter for the book if you pre-order it or what have you so that it's going to be to use and someone's going to read this this stuff that I spent time writing. Um, So it's not just like cut and gone and not used, but it
2: makes the book better. Yeah, that's... um. Uh, one thing that got do you know the history of tapering Steve how that came about and I mean so so one I think what happened um, at least the way that I read one version of the story and you, you know way more about running history than I do I'm sure but the is that there's all these examples when you look through history of people like just continue adding, adding, adding and never think of like basically the other way to make change. And I think running is actually a really good example of it. And w- like a breakthrough in tapering was the guy. Is it Zapotec or Zata-pack? Um zatapec yeah. Who got like really sick before this big race. And so he was he was couldn't couldn't practice. And then people are like, oh, my gosh, he ran really fast. And then we're like, oh, well, maybe he ran fast because he was sick and therefore couldn't run. Um, and so it was like this kind of breakthrough in tapering as a performance strategy. And it's relatively recent. And it's funny not to think that people didn't think of it until that time. It's like subtraction wasn't even an option. I don't know, like how I'm sure people had thought of subtract thought of tapering before that, but it seemed like that was really a breakthrough and how that happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we won't go down the running nerd route, or else Brad might kill me. But um, <laughs> yeah, Zatopek, like that that story, as far as I know, I I remember it in one of his his uh, biographies. Actually, um, is true, and it's funny how like subtle shifts like that start changing like the um, the whole approach to that. So tapering was like a. Th- like peaking was a thing before then, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like the thing. And then after Zatopek in the fifties and then Arthur Lydiard in the sixties, like really took that message and said, okay, here's our peak race. Like we're going to back off on this, this, and this, and subtract all this and do just enough to maintain. And that's where kind of in the distance running world, modern, modern peaking
2: and tapering came about. So
1: yeah, it's fascinating.
2: And that's super recent in terms of the history of running, and I, I mean that's totally relevant to subtraction. This was the reason I thought of it is because it was a late cut from my book. Um, the other thing I would say on the um, on the angstiness back to that is I do think that there's situations right where if you subtract enough, people notice it. And so one of I I like Bruce Springsteen. I use his example in my book. He's got this darkness of on the edge of town album that is one of his most critically acclaimed albums and the reason that, and it's got a lot of the fan favorites on there too, but it, um, it was just noticeably different from anything he'd done before because he had subtracted so much stuff. He had really stripped down the instrumentals. He had really stripped down the lyrics. He had cut from 50 songs that he recorded in that time down to 10 or 12. I forget how many were on the album, but, um, because everybody adds, you can show that you're different by subtracting. And I imagine there's a version of that, like if you imagine the NFL coach going in for a job interview, and everybody's got 500-page playbooks, and the coach is there sitting confidently with the 10 plays and explains, you know, why this is different and better. I mean, the subtraction in that case, the competence can be noticeable through subtraction. It seems like you just have to subtract a little bit more. I think this is a
0: really important distinction um and to make for for listeners and, and for myself is well, first off, before the distinction, also Leonard Cohen, who's like one of my favorite artists ever, right? Like Hallelujah. Malcolm Gladwell did a whole podcast on it. That that song went from like what 250 verses down to three. Um oh, in his last that. album, his last album before he died, it's just like Oh, right to the essence of things. Um, but something that we've talked about before is like the path of mastery, and you start it simple, and then you get really complex because you're actually figuring out how things work, and you want to explain them in 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 look at them in different ways, and then when you hit mastery, it's simple again. Um, there's this Zen cone that's like the path to enlightenment. First, there were mountains and rivers, then there were no mountains and rivers, then there were mountains and rivers. And I think the kind of subtraction that you advocate for really well, um, and I love this distinction, like between lazy subtraction and meaningful subtraction is it's not to say that like you immediately arrive at subtraction. Often you have to work through that complexity where there's a whole bunch of stuff. And then the next step, what kind of takes you from good to great. Is then
2: pairing it back down to its essence. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair, and I think it's so essential, right? Because I think there's this miscon- conflation of subtracting with easiness. And if we think that it's going to be easy, we're actually setting us up ourselves up to fail, right? Everything from just the the cognitive processes. What we started with is that it's not that we can't think of subtraction as an option. It's just that our first instinct is to add. And if we think a little bit more, we can think to subtract. But if we think it's going to be easy. We're not going to do that extra effort. And then as you move from like our thinking minds into the real world where you're talking about, you know, producing some piece of writing or, you know, one of the things that your book helped me with, Brad, was just this constant reminder that I give myself when I'm teaching that, you know, the the goal is not to show the the students that I'm smart, right? (laughs) The goal is to get them the information. And that's where it's like, okay, once you kind of remind yourself of that goal, that's when you start taking stuff away. It's like, okay, yeah, this is useful, but you're not useful. This is true. And this makes me seem like I know what I'm talking about, but it doesn't actually help the students. And it actually distracts the students from what the thing is that they, you want them to take away from that class period.
1: Love it. So I want to pivot here as we're, you know, 40 minutes into this podcast. I want to pivot to understanding a little bit about who you are okay, (laughs) and how you ended up to, to, you know, the the broad range of experience and expertise you have now. And first, I want to start with, you know, I think in, in researching for this and reading your book and then listening to other podcasts. I was just struck by, I think you said a statement that for the first 22 years of your life, like, soccer was the thing.
2: Yep, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it was like, it was everything. And I mean, it seems like self-indulgent. And I mean, it is self-indulgent, I guess. But it's like, I mean, that was what I was... I knew that I wasn't going to be able to play forever. uh, And I knew that when I was in college... Like okay, this is like your the only time you're going to be able to do this. I can do academic stuff forever, um, and uh, so yeah, it was the thing that I lived for. The thing that I, if you ask me, okay, are you getting? Are you growing? I would measure my growth in terms of how well I was doing at soccer. And then I ended up I played uh, professional soccer for a couple years after college, and I mean I made like two thousand dollars a month uh, which was pretty good for professional soccer in the United States at the time. But, uh, and it, you know, allowed me to continue doing this thing that I loved and, you know, travel and, and learn all these things, but it was definitely my focus for the first 22 years of my life.
1: Okay. I have, I have two quick questions on, uh, following up on that. Cause I, I think that's amazing. Um, for the first part, I think it's amazing because a lot of people, you don't hear about people who like are so focused on sport and then make this transition towards uh, academics and are highly successful in it. But my first question is kind of related to maybe how your parents saw things, because here you are like, and I'm projecting a little bit, but you're this this guy who loves soccer, is all in on soccer, i'm I'm gonna guess like made most of your life decisions like around soccer, you know on what what allows you to play and you know achieve goals and all that all that stuff how like how did your parents like help like allow you to pursue that, but then at the same time maybe not burn all your future bridges? you know, pursuing this, making $2,000, you know, a month <laughs> soccer career when you obviously have like the intelligence, ability, work ethic to, you know, do other things.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I have amazing parents um, and th- I think they just saw, I mean, obviously, as you both know, there are all these other life benefits to sports. Right. And I think that they saw that Hey, this stuff that I was learning in soccer, the teamwork, the ability to um, to see that if you work at something, you know, there are positive outcomes. The Also, also the ability to see that if you work at something, sometimes you still fail. Um, I think they were seeing me learn all these life lessons. At the same time, I am sure they were worried, and I think especially worried, like, so the, the college decision is the funniest one because you mentioned me making like all these decisions based on soccer. And I don't know how my parents let me get away with this, but I picked my college. I went to Lafayette college. It's in the, it was like, they had made the sweet 16 in soccer the year before. And I saw that like their forwards, which was the position that I played, weren't very good. And I was like, well, hell, I can start there as a freshman and they're good. That's the best place I can start right away. Meanwhile, they don't have athletic scholarships. Um, and it it's like a small private school that costs like 50 grand a year at the time, which was absurd even then. And, uh, and my parents were like, okay, <laughs> we know you like try really hard at this. And I mean, I was getting like 3 GPA in engineering, so I was doing fine. It wasn't, if, if I was failing out of school, they would have had a different conversation, but I mean, they were under no illusions that I was like devoting all my attention to school. They, um, so But that decision blows my mind because my parents were, I mean, we were were obviously very blessed in terms of like our lifestyle, but like my dad was a college professor and my mom basically raised the three kids. It wasn't like they had, this was like spending that amount of money on my college changed their (laughs) financial planning and they never said a word about how much it costs. And uh, anyway, um, so so yeah, and then, but then after... I think they were a little nervous after college when I started playing professionally and I'm like, okay, dude, what do you like? You're making $2,000 a month. You're sitting on the bench. You're like, if you get promoted to the top league, you're still going to be making $2,000 a month. And, um, but I mean, I also, a lot of the stuff that was really fun about soccer, like the teamwork and the camaraderie and the pushing yourself to see how good you could get kind of some of that went away when it became professional, um, just because it's, it's a business, it's professional. And um, and so it wasn't like they told me to stop playing soccer. It, it was totally, that was totally my decision too. But it, I think they were less nervous once I started doing a real job.
0: How, how old were you when you stopped playing?
2: Uh, like 20, um, 22 it would have been. So I stopped right at, yeah, I was born in 1978 and I stopped like a month after 9-11 uh, happened. So how many years out of college was it where you were playing Just two, two, two seasons of pro. Yeah. And I I mean, there was also this. Go ahead.
0: I was just going to say how, like, what, what was that identity shift like? Because. Oh
2: gosh. It's
0: yeah. Like walk (laughs) us through that. Was there a dark period? Did you grieve it? Were you, were you burnt out on soccer? Were you like, all right, now I, I'm going to, you know, hit up academics really hard because I think it's worth like digging into this if you're comfortable sharing, because, you know, on paper, you're like this all-star academic that sits in three departments at a great school, beautiful campus, by the way, UVA, plug for Charlottesville. Um, I'm just five out f- five hours away in Asheville. I think uh, they're, they're both really nice places. But um, yeah, so like, how did you make that shift? Um, and what was the transition period like?
2: who's there's a famous writer who talks about it as basically like being a death when you stop playing a sport. And, uh, I've never really experienced a major death. Somebody super close to me, knock on wood, super very fortunate, but I, I would compare it to that. I mean, it was a grieving process and it was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to play soccer anymore. Well, I know for my like life trajectory, I'm not going to be able to play soccer anymore. And, uh, and it was easiest to just stop playing altogether because so many of the things that I liked about it were like seeing how good you could get. Right. And people are like, Oh, don't you want to play in this men's league on the weekend? And I'm like, not, not really. <laughs> I mean, I, I love playing, but it's like, if I'm going to go and be worse than I used to be. And like, that's some of it. And I've spent a lot of weekends playing. So I definitely wasn't burnt out. It, it was just, and it was, a, uh, it was really hard. Um, I think the other thing that was hard was, uh, for so long, that had been the thing that was like pushing me uh, or like I was aligning my kind of efforts around. And then you're like, OK, well, I played professional soccer. And if you like think of yourself as retired. Right. I'm like, I'm just going to kick back and do my day job and just be a normal person. And not, I mean, normal in quotes, everybody's doing amazing stuff. But it was. I realized really quickly that I wasn't going to be happy like that. Right. It's like I need to uh, I need to be moving, like growing, I guess, and, and doing something that I find meaning in. Um, and so so there is those two things going on. One was just really grieving the loss of this sport and, um, and everything that went with it. And then also just kind of finding, realizing that I also needed something to kind of treat in that same way that I cared so much about that I really wanted to get better at. Um, and then kind of finding that thing. And that, that took a while. I mean, I worked, um, I had my civil engineering degree as an undergrad and I just, I worked in construction management for a while and it, it was a good job. It felt like I was, I liked my job more than my friends, but uh, liked theirs. And then, um, but I, that's when I started thinking, okay, like what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And I, I always loved like reading and writing and thinking and realized You know, my dad being a professor, I knew a little bit about what that job entailed. And I also absolutely love teaching. Um, So that's when I started thinking about, okay, this this could be a potential career path. And then it was about five years. It was like 2005 when I started back for my Ph.D. And that's when I really started the kind of academic career
1: That's yeah. No, that's really fascinating, especially the kind of moving on point, which, you know, I forget the writer who talked about athletes dying, but there are it feeling like a death. But there's this famous saying like athletes die twice. Right. Is there? Because, OK,
2: that's yeah. even better. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So and, and I have no idea where it came from, um, but it's it's fascinating. Right. Because you have to kind of like make sense. Of uh, you know, moving on from something that n- provides you some of those basic needs of like growth, competency. We've been talking about all <laughs> yeah, the comp- signaling, right? yeah. Like, I, I mean, it does, uh, which is interesting <laughs> in the context of this conversation as well. Um, but you know, I I gotta ask, like, how how did you like? like you talked about moving on and getting your PhD and like going into this professor um, academia world, but how, like, what was that process or what was the most difficult part of that process? And like most academics are on that path from a relatively young age, right? Or like see that path from a relatively young age. I guess, what was it like, going through that process, maybe in a different way or later than your peers.
2: Yeah, I I mean, you started with this uh, beautiful story of a grad class with five students in it. And I remember sitting in a grad a very vivid, like sitting in a grad class with five students in it. Actually, it was four in my case, but it was four students and this like brilliant professor teaching us research methods. And the other students had gone like straight through basically through undergrad. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, holy crap, this is like the most amazing opportunity ever. And they're all bored. They're like, she's giving us 50 pages of reading. And I'm like, we're getting to like learn from this brilliant person. So, I mean, I think the age was an advantage there. Like the experiences were an advantage there. Also, say, I mean, sports, I think, has just helped a ton. I mean, for better or worse, sports gave me this artificial well, this belief that you could like your actions can do something, right? Because it creates this really carefully controlled environment where it's like, okay, I practice and then I'm I see the results in the game, or I have a better chance of seeing the results in the game. And I think in the in academia, it's like uh the The distance between like effort doing a piece of research or like reading an article, you don't even know where that's going to end up in terms of somebody actually recognizing it or even you recognizing that, hey, this thing I did way back then contributed to this thing in the future. But I think because of sports, I had this maybe it's like naive or over um, overconfident view that like, hey, you can like actually make a change in this bigger bigger world um, beyond the kind of carefully controlled confines of a soccer field. So I think it's been helpful in that respect. Um, And I also, I mean, the teamwork, it seems cliche, but you realize with all this stuff, like dealing with other people, people just have not had that same intense training that I've had in that, where it's like my, our success depends on our ability to get along and understand each other. And no matter how many kind of, uh, yeah, that's not something you can really simulate that well in the classroom. So I feel really fortunate to have that. So I guess to, to sum it up, I think, yeah, I was starting from behind, but I was also like bringing some unique skills that other people may not have had. Um, and I think tried to lean into those skills. And I think that is where I, you know, offering an advantage in academia. So. We're going to
0: take a, a minute to nerd out about um, oh, nice. like like mastery and sport at a high level and in working really hard. So I've never been as good at you as you, excuse me, or Steve is like a prodigy four minute miler in high school in sports. Um, but like I've trained really hard. I was a you know good enough football player to play college football and continue to have a physical practice in my life. Something that Steve and I have been thinking about a lot, talking about on this podcast, is just the value of doing real and hard and concrete things in the world. So, like, you either lift the weight or you don't. The mile either happens in 440 or it doesn't. And I think that in an academic setting, I have to imagine there are a lot of people that just don't ever do hard things in the world. And I've certainly come across this in various settings where like the amount of stress around small things or like the self-importance about like organizational bureaucracy stuff just seems so dumb. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you can comment on that without ostracizing specific colleagues um, or anything like that. But, you know... Steve and I, we've never been professors in a big institution. But something that you hear is that there's a lot of navel gazing and self-importance and like self-flagellation. And to me, that's like the opposite of training at an elite level.
2: Yeah, I I agree 100 percent. The ironic thing about that is I don't think anyone would disagree. And yet here we are like perpetuating a system that has it. I I always I credit actually my like construction management experience because I was working on like Construction projects around New York City. I mean, these people did not like. <laughs> there are no old sparred, right? I mean, there is like cursing each other out. Talk about canceling. I mean, every single person in my office would have been canceled every day, probably, <laughs> um, for the stuff they were doing, doing and saying. And uh, I mean, not yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think that the there is this thing where it's like the. There's a famous quote about this too. It's basically that like it's, it's precisely because the stuff is insignificant that people end up paying so much attention to it in academia. It's like I talk to students who are saying like, "Oh, I'm really worried about being stressed out if I be, become a professor and worrying about like getting a paper published." Like this is and or the the politics of academia. And I think it's one of the most like the least political places anywhere. It's like you you are judged based on like what you actually accomplish. There's not actually any politics going on. Politics is when the superintendent is of schools is like friends with the uh, the contractor and uses that contractor because they're friends. I mean, and that's academia has done a really good job at not having those kinds of things happen. Um, yeah, so I. <laughs> maybe this is an area for editing. So it's uh, I think that the it, it's totally true that you know it, sports makes sports makes these things seem trivial and helps kind of steer you past the um, the, the challenges that are in academia. Um, I think also though, like just working outside of academia probably helps a ton with that. So I'm glad
1: that, you know, in this podcast where we started with your book, Subtract, we meandered through the world of sport and the lessons that it can teach you, which is basically my role on this podcast is essentially to talk sport and always bring that in when Brad goes like ancient (laughs) wisdom. So I'm glad we got to nerd out on all of this.
2: Um, can I? I've I got one more sport example, and I think this is something that you do a great job covering in your book, Brad. And is just like, and credit back to my parents because there wasn't as much scientific evidence at the time. I don't think about how, just how like practically useful physical activity is for a life of the mind, right? I mean, I think there was wisdom about that, but there wasn't. You know, there weren't these. This just like. Conclusive research evidence that shows how beneficial it is, and I think that that's really been a huge benefit for me. I mean, I'm having uh, been an athlete, I realized that I think differently when I'm running than I do when I'm sitting in my desk, and just consciously using those different types of thinking. It's like, okay, I'm going to save this. You know, thinking of the subtitle for my book—that's a—that's a running task. That's sitting at my desk. I'm never going to think of that. Um, so. I think that's been incredibly helpful And in another lesson that like directly translates from sports, not to mention all the like kind of long-term mental health benefits that that provides. Um, yeah, I, I would. And then the other thing I would say, the last thing from sports is that, you know, in sports we do weightlifting, right. Uh, and, or training and you maybe you're going to run three mile segments to get you ready for a 5k sometime. And, um, taking a similar tact to, you know, how you train your brain for academia, right? It's like, okay, I need to write this paper. Maybe that's the ultimate outcome. But in the meantime, how can I be like training my brain to do the best job at that? And like really taking seriously your, your mental health and your um, kind of the, the ability to think. Um, and that, so I think that's another thing that is the direct translation from sports. Love it. So before we wrap up, lady, is
0: there anything that we didn't hit that um that feels important to you to talk
2: about? The strider bike. Do you have a strider bike for your son? We didn't talk about <laughs> that. <laughs> I, don't I know do if have a strider bike. Okay, he loves good. it. Okay, good. Perfect.
0: So So the Strider bike, you know, that'll be a plug to read this great book. Um, the story of the Strider bike, which any parent of, um, of a kid under five ought to know about, and if not should, should learn about, um, all right, well, if we're going to go there, then I, I had one final question and it's been a theme of this podcast as well for the last couple of months. So. It seems like a few times in your book, Lydie, you talk about one area of your life where you don't subtract, and that is the number of sneakers that you have. You've got 14 pairs. This is an area of Steve's life where he needs some serious addition. So the context here, Steve, we've talked about this on the podcast too much, but I think we can really make some improvement. Steve has this weird Hegelian Achilles, I don't know, Greek mythology heel, and He claims that he can only wear this one pair of shoes. So whenever they're like bright, they're they're like bright orange running shoes. So whenever we go speak, whenever we go (laughs) speak to audiences and stuff, I'm looking all dapper. Steve rolls up. He's looking good above the ankles. And then he's got like his orange running shoes on. Can we help Steve find some comfortable dress shoes? We're not talking about shoes. He's got to run a marathon in just shoes that like he can go out to dinner it it will help me. I know his partner Hillary will love you to death if you can hook Steve up with some shoes. So what what do we got for Steve? How can we add some good shoes to Steve's
2: life? This is working for Jerry Seinfeld, right? He does it and pulls it <laughs> off. It's your thing. Do you wear the old running shoes? Like no, you? No,
1: no, no. They're not old running shoes. They're just they're. I mean, the running shoes. But I don't actually run in the pair that I I wear to. So you they're know, dedicated
2: running shoes stuff. to wear yeah. around. Yeah. I don't, I'm not messing with this because I know, I mean, I switched pairs of shoes and I screw up my, like something pulls in my calf. And yeah, so I've, I, I mean my personally, I, I do, I have found a pair of shoes. I use the, the Adidas rod labors work really well for me for just everyday stuff. And they're probably a step up Brad from the, um, from the orange running shoes if you're carrying Steve around with you talking, but, um, I would not, if it's working for you, I wouldn't change it. I mean, it's the worst to get those injuries that have to do with shoes.
0: Look at that, Brad. Your question backfired. Backfired. I'm just looking like a shallow
1: asshole. (laughs) I I love it now. Love it. So this this is now my new favorite uh, podcast guest, just based on that. Just kidding. Everything else was great, too, but man, this was fascinating and insightful. And, you know, what is very clear in this conversation is, you know, you have a a very wide range, a broad range of experience and you pull from all of it to get to these conclusions. It, it It's clear in your book as well. And I think that's just so cool. I mean, just the fact that we can nerd out on on soccer and sport and then bring it all the way into the minutia of academia and research studies is, is awesome. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I know Brad did as well. I know our listeners will. Is there anybody who, um, or is there anywhere we should send listeners who are listening to this and say, hey, I want to check out
2: his work more? The book, (laughs) the book has all the best stuff. And uh, and I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I'm mainly just tweeting what people are saying about the book at this stage. Uh, All the the good stuff's in the book. And I have a good my parents, in addition to overpaying for college so that I could start my freshman year, uh, gave me a good Google name so you can see what I'm up to just by Googling me.
0: All right. That is Lighty Klotz and his book is Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. We loved it. Um, and if you guys dig uh, the growth equation stuff, this book is just absolutely in the wheelhouse and we think you'll learn a ton. So, uh, so pick up a copy. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.TheGrowthEQ.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe,
1: rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.